0: Hey, welcome back to Dad Conversations. Today, you'll hear my conversation with Jeremy Deaver. We covered a lot of ground, including what it's like as a healthcare administrator, growing up in Kinston, North Carolina, getting a major punch in the gut at grad school orientation, his favorite books, and then, of course, he talked about being a husband and dad to his four kids. Jeremy mentioned his hometown of Kinston produces a ton of NBA talent, which I questioned him live uh, if it was a matter of, small population from a small town with only a couple guys in the league, but he sent me the numbers afterwards, sure enough, turns out Kinston, North Carolina has a lot of incredible basketball players per capita. It was astonishing, actually. Also this was recorded a few days before Christmas. Towards the end, Jeremy mentioned cryptocurrency, which had been on quite a run at that time. And boy has it continued since. Bitcoin has doubled since we spoke three weeks ago, then it dropped 15% and now it's back up near the all-time high around 40 k So that's an interesting roller coaster uh, for those who are crazy enough or maybe wise enough to ride it. Anyway, if you enjoy this conversation, please go ahead and subscribe to the show. The next episodes will include a tattoo artist, a software salesman, an OBGYN doc who ran for U.S. Senate, a restaurant manager, and an old friend of mine that became a big-time YouTuber. I'll talk with each of them about their different areas of expertise, their life stories and philosophies, and of course, their approach to being dads. All right, time to hear from Jeremy. Enjoy. Jeremy, thanks for being here.
1: Sean, thanks for having me, man.
0: You are more than welcome for a couple reasons, actually, I, for, for whatever reason I've had, you're like the, at least fourth Jeremy out of, um, you know, the first 40 ish episodes, which is, I had no idea the, the, uh, rate of Jeremy's in my network. So that's a
1: really, that's a really high rate of Jeremy's. I, I would not have expected that out of 40 people. Um, you know, may, maybe there's something to be said about the name Jeremy. Maybe it's, you know, I, it's destined for, for greatness. So, you know, I, I probably missed the boat on, Carrying that name on to my kids, but I did not do that. That was probably a big mistake on my part. <laughs>
0: yeah. Um, also, we, you are one of the few guests who is in a convoluted way related to me. So that's kind of cool.
1: <laughs> we are related in a convoluted way and and happy to be related in, in a convoluted way. Yeah, I think we <laughs> first, Sean, we first met when back in 20. Maybe 2012, 2013. So we knew each Probably. other before your sister married my brother-in-law.
0: That's right. Yeah. yeah. It was a birthday party, in fact. It was, um,
1: yeah.
0: I want to say it was maybe the same kids that just had a birthday party of yours. Because it was yeah, like you around were, Christmas time.
1: You were at my cousin's daughter's birthday.
0: Oh, it wasn't your kid's birthday?
1: No, no, no. It was not mine. Oh.
0: Uh-huh. All right, there you go. What do I know? Not much. Oh. I don't keep track. Anyway, <laughs> um, for listeners out there, I th- you have a um, what I would consider an interesting career that I'm excited to hear about, and you're in healthcare administration. Um, I'm curious to know from you an overview of healthcare administration. Like, I'm assuming, as, as someone who doesn't know anything about it, my my assumptions would be doctors make medical decisions healthcare administrators make some or all business decisions for a hospital or a health system i would assume doctors are involved somewhat like i'd love to know where that overlaps and um how you go about working together what what your role looks like like what types of things do you do and then um you know after covering that maybe we'll touch on covid and and kind of how that has impacted um, the business and your, um, hospital system. Yeah, that sound that,
1: good? Uh, yeah that sounds great. Uh, ho- hopefully it's as interesting as you think it is. I, I hope I don't let you down. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> it feels uh, a little mundane to me, but, um, it, it is interesting from down to time, particularly my field. So, um, I primarily over the past several years, I have worked in neurosciences and, you know, I, I have a, a personal bias. Uh, that that neurology is probably the coolest field out there Uh, just because it deals with the brain and the brain is such a mysterious organ of the body. um, We are still learning constantly more and more information, getting new innovations about how to treat brain disease. And so that's been probably 1 of the most fulfilling parts of my job uh, over the past few years. And 1 of the reasons that I've kind of stayed with neurosciences. Uh, I I usually like to uh, move on from an area when I feel like I haven't been able to uh, move it anymore, when I can't take it any further, and it seems like just as I get done with something, something new comes out, and it's like this new conquest that I have to uh, make sure we tackle. Um, Getting back to your, your first question, Sean, about how uh hospital administration works so uh, generally i think you've got a good a, a good understanding of it so um yes physicians uh are really the the primary decision makers when it comes to uh kind of clinical like major clinical decisions clinical protocols within the hospital how we treat patients um from a business side um usually I'm taking the lead on that for business and operations, but really, you know, all three areas, clinical, business, operations, really, we were making those decisions in tandem. So um, in healthcare, we refer to something called a Dyad model um, where there's really kind of two leaders that, that make decisions in tandem. And what I have found is that that really helps ensure good harmony. Um, If you talk to the average physician, one thing that you'll probably hear, if you just even mention the word administration, there's a high likelihood that you will get an eye roll. And that's one of those things that, um, for whatever reason, that is just a, there's a stigma attached to administration in the eyes of physicians. And I think one of the main reasons for that historically is that administration did not do a, a great job of partnering with physicians. It was, you know, kind of top, top down decision making, maybe some input from physicians, but, you know, the, the hospitals really kind of making their, their own decisions. Um, something that I think has improved that over time is just some of the competitive pressures on healthcare systems. It's really forced uh, hospitals and physicians to work a lot more closely together. Um, something that you probably maybe you've seen, maybe you've noticed, maybe not is that a lot of health systems have uh, bought up a lot of physician practices. And so those physicians, they're no longer you know independent employees of their own practice, but they're, they're employees of the health system. And so that I think probably has forced in a good way um, better collaboration between physicians and administrators. And I think the, the ultimate winner in all of this are, are patients. Um, you know, if I'm a patient, I want to make sure that I'm getting high quality care, but I also want to make sure that it's efficient and, uh, you know, cost effective. And and I think having both an administrator and a physician making decisions together helps to check all those boxes. Whereas if it's one or the other, you may be missing out on one of those areas.
0: That is interesting. So for the entrepreneurial um, physicians that have their own shop, they would struggle to compete on a cost basis with a much larger integrated health system. Is that right?
1: Well, you know, it depends on what's going on in the local market. So, <clears throat> you know, from a referral stream standpoint, if, if they have good control over their referral stream and it's steady and they have enough volume and to kind of capture that market share, then they may do just fine. And, you know, there are physicians out there who they, they have a great business mind and they make it work and they can kind of check all those boxes. I, I would say that that is probably less common than than what we typically see in the market, though. And I think that that is 1 reason that kind of drives physicians into partnering with. Uh, large health systems is just because of the amount of support that health systems can provide. Um, obviously, you know, the bigger you are, the the uh, uh, better able you are to negotiate in rates for equipment and supplies and uh, reimbursement from the payers. Uh right. You know, with the Affordable Care Act that came out a few years ago, actually, it's probably been longer than that now. <laughs>
0: yeah, that was like a few years ago. That's a decade, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> time, time flies fast, Sean. Stay with me. We're here. getting old, man. <laughs> we, yeah, we are. Um, we, with the Affordable Care Act that came out now a long time ago, um, there was a lot of measures that were really mandated to be put into place to... Uh, improve a lot of things related to uh, just record keeping and making sure that patients had access to their data, um, and that you know we we try to start limiting paper charting and just a, a lot of different things. But really, the move to require uh, and encourage health systems and physician practices to get on electronic medical record it was really kind of devastating to a lot of. You know these smaller physician practices because that's that's an expensive investment and uh you know that that is one of the reasons why you know a lot of these practices have have reached out to affiliate with large health systems is to get that uh overhead support with some of those things
0: that makes total sense um and that's it's tough i mean i like the idea of shared medical records but at the same time a new uh government requirement Requirement that forces a lot of people to have to essentially sell their business. That's tough. Um, what, what are your thoughts on, um, what, what do you say to those people who are worried about. Um, having their medical records shared, um, anybody who's been listening to too many conspiracy theories, like, what do you say? Um, is that should anyone be worried about having. All of their medical records um, shared and potentially viewable by the government.
1: So that's a great question, and it, it, it's really something that I haven't spent a ton of time thinking about. Uh, you know, I, I'm not a big conspiracy theorist myself. Uh, I, you know, m- I probably need to be more wary about uh, you know the privacy of my personal information. I, I guess you know I, I've always been an open book as a person, and you know for me personally. You know the the threat of my information being shared. I think a big question that I ask is so what? Aside from my social security number, that is a, a big so what. Um, but it, and I know that that's not the case for a lot of other people out there who who are more private, who want to protect their information. Um, there, I mean, that is a a a risk, Sean. Um, you know, before with paper records, it you know it's. Uh, really difficult to hack paper records. The only way to, to get into that is to break in an office and, you know, go find out where the paper records are stored. I mean, it's one of the reasons, you know, from a, a cryptocurrency standpoint that they talk about having a paper wallet, it's you know, really one of the, the safer ways to, to store your, your digital assets. But, uh, you know, you, you have to weigh the risk against the upside of doing so. And the upside is better communication and coordination of care Between uh, providers, so, you know, one of the the biggest frustrations that I have both as a parent. You know, of of, uh, a son who has a lot of health issues and, you know, just a, a hospital administrator in general is. The, the lack of coordination between providers and, you know, I don't blame individual providers for that. It's really kind of the nature of the situation. But thinking about how things were before. Uh, electronic medical records, there was really very little, uh, coordination between providers. So. You know, some patients will have a neurologist, a cardiologist, a primary care physician that may be doing rehab. And, you know, if those providers aren't talking to one another about a particular plan, there's, there's room there for uh, that care to not be delivered in the way that it needs to happen. And that impacts the health of the patient and so with. Electronic medical record systems that potentials there um, just because it's there doesn't mean that it's happening. And I think there's still a lot of work that needs to uh, continue to occur. To improve that, but the potentials there, in my opinion, I think the upside far outweighs the the risk.
0: Mm. Yeah, definitely a lot to like uh, with that model uh, on the upsides. Mm. I'm curious, um, you know well, let me back up with a little context. So when I was in, in business school, there was like 130 people in my cohort. And I, I, I believe it was at least 10, maybe a dozen of them were doctors and and a lot of them were, uh, big timers, you know, relatively famous in their fields. or, or at least uh, in senior leadership, I was surprised, uh, one of them who I was in, um, close you know we were teammates um he's a you know respected um hospitalist um internal medicine in the you know triangle area his main goal with with getting an mba was he wanted to be like respected have his opinions um received well when talking uh, with hospital leadership Mm -hmm. um and it struck me as like, that is such an immense cost to go through for someone. He's not investing in an MBA to like change his career or to open up a path towards leadership. Like he loves doing what he's doing. He's already making, you know, doctor money. He just wants to be heard a little more like, and so going through a tremendous, uh, expense of time and money to get an MBA, um, I was like, man, that's, it's, it's, Tough to see that. Um, what are your thoughts on that? How common is that? Do you see that often? And can you walk us through, like, what does the collaboration um, when it's working? Well, what is that best case collaboration look like? Um, if you have any stories or experiences for doctors and healthcare administrators collaborating in a way that works towards the best benefit for the customer and the hospital?
1: Yeah, great, great question. That's that's fascinating, and uh, I mean, I, I completely get it from the physician standpoint. Um, you know, I think for physicians that go to medical school, um, you know, there's not a tremendous amount of time spent on uh, you know leadership and operations in the business side, and so that is a gap. And you know, it, it seems like there's probably an opportunity to include that. I mean, I. Physicians have so much schooling as it is, so it doesn't make sense to, you know, further extend their schooling. But, uh, you know, certainly. Uh, it's- yeah, if
0: there was a imagine if if let's just take Duke, for example, teamed up with, I don't know, I mean, or, or even Duke uh, has which has a great medical school and business school or Johns Hopkins has a good business school and medical school. You know, they like do an extra semester, like just business fundamentals so that it's like, OK, you've got your M.D., degree and we were certifying you with some stamp of like business acumen you know like that would surely there's uh interest in that and uh sort of mba light you know much cheaper much quicker but still getting 80 percent of the impact for a incoming physician i don't know
1: yeah no i mean that's that's a great idea and and i'm not sure that there that doesn't already exist in some programs but the the problem is that, you know, that's the exception. That's not the, the norm for physicians. And so, you know, that is a, a gap that they have coming out of medical school. And it, it does take quite a bit to impart that knowledge. Um, it, it's not from a lack of their ability to, to just know that because it's not intuitive. It's something that I had to learn. And, and I mean, similarly for administrators, like, you know, I, I did an MBA uh with a hospital administration concentration but um you know we we didn't learn how to treat patients <laughs> i i didn't learn about uh, the the body and anatomy and all that stuff and so that's i've had to do a lot of on-the-job training uh, there as well but you know to get back to your question about you know why is that the case why does that happen where you know the, the communication between physicians and administrators isn't good You know I, sean i think it's totally dependent on the healthcare system and the culture of, uh, you know, expectations for communication and collaboration. I think it's a function of the administrator. So individually, you know, you could have a great culture in an organization and have an administrator who's just not, not a great communicator and uh, not a great collaborator. Um, the, the third option is you, you, or the third scenario is you could have a physician who just, you know, it, isn't aware of uh, you know his uh, you know gaps in social awareness and in you know business operations. He may be you know more emotional when it comes to decisions, and that might be an obstacle for some of that collaboration. And really, you know, I, I have seen all three scenarios play out. Um, but uh, I think from if that's going to be fixed. On a macro level, I think it has to start with culture uh, of organizations just in making that an expectation. So I'll give you a really good example. Um, I currently work at uh, Cone Health uh, in in Greensboro, North Carolina. I've been there for 10 years, and we have spent a ton of time on developing our culture as an organization, um, way more than I thought that I, I would in a professional setting. Um, you think of culture and in I feel like I've been in environments before where it's something that gets mentioned a few times a year, but we we have like ongoing and you know, at a minimum monthly discussions about our culture as an organization. And we regularly reference our our vision and our values and our purpose and all of that stuff. It's just very much woven into our way of operating every day. And so, as a part of that culture, um, we have created a physician leadership academy, just recognizing that gap that exists uh, for our medical directors. Um, And uh, you know that that is a I'm trying to think how long it is. Um, It's kind of a a, uh, it kind of coincides with the like a academic year for school. So I think it starts in September, wraps up in May the following year, and. they, they really put these physicians through a crash course in you know, being an administrator. And we've had a really good success rate at physicians going on after that to get into administrative positions. So just in the past year, we've created um, uh, chief medical officer roles for each of our individual hospitals. And uh, it's been a huge benefit to our health system because I, I think in times past, Uh, you know, administrators may try to partner up with individual physician leaders of individual services, but there really does need to be someone on a higher level that can kind of corral, uh, that group. Uh, you know, change is never easy in healthcare and, and having a physician involved in kind of leading some of that change definitely helps. Um, if I were to predict the future, I would say that we'll probably get better as an industry at training physicians to be to step into those leadership roles. I mean, there's, I I don't think that that business healthcare leaders will ever go away, but I definitely think there's going to be a lot more physician leaders in the future. And I I think that's probably a good thing.
0: Yeah, no doubt. Having both of those skill sets is, uh, that'd be. Ideal.
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely.
0: Um. Cool, man. Anything else that we uh, should have touched on that we haven't related to your field? Anything that maybe you wish the average person knew or understood about healthcare administration um, before we move on to getting to know you a little better?
1: You know, not, not so much about. In healthcare administration, I, I think um, <laughs> for, people know that I work at the hospital, and so you know I, I typically become their resource anytime something's something's amiss, like they they need healthcare assistance or navigating the health system. And uh, you know, so, something that I, I think would be helpful for people to know is you know when things go south, I think. And I'm talking about clinically, like if someone goes to the hospital or goes to a physician practice and something goes south for whatever reason. I think there's a lot of um, tendency to kind of assume the worst that oh, you know, the the hospital's trying to screw me over, or um, you know, this physician's trying to screw me over. And it, it does happen. I, I don't want to portray that it doesn't, but I would just say that. You know, having been involved in boardroom discussions, having worked really closely with our uh, leadership team for many years, um, it's very rarely anything intentional that happens. And and usually it's just a result of, uh, you know, poor communication that's happening. And so I think, you know, just people being patient and empathetic and understanding, but still communicating concerns about things will definitely go a long way. Um, versus just kind of assuming like, oh well, you know, this is the hospital again trying to screw me over. It's just that that's definitely not anyone's mo. If anything, hospitals want to do everything they can to make sure that patients are are happy and satisfied and, and willing to you know come back again to use our services. So I think you know just for for anyone out there who consumes healthcare, I think that's just a, a good FYI. Um, yeah. Sean, the other thing I was going to mention, and I don't know if maybe we talk about this later, but, um, in in terms of career path, I think that's probably an interesting discussion just in terms of how I got into my field, but I'll I'll let you, I don't want to steal your thunder and I'll let you kind of navigate that.
0: Yeah, let's, um, let's hit that one in a bit. Um, but I do, I think that was a really good point there on, on communication. And I think at a, um, personal or even at an organizational level there's very few people out there trying to get you but communication is so critical and i can't remember what which book it was that i was reading but and you may be more familiar with this but it was some study um being referenced that like doctors with the best communication skills don't get sued and um the doctors with poor communication skills get sued like 10 10 to 20 times more often and it has it's not at all correlated with quality of care but it's all about communication because we don't i have have no idea if my doctor's a good doctor or not i just know if he like communicates well you know what i mean have you heard about that one
1: absolutely i have heard that yeah i've forgotten about it but you're you're 100 percent accurate and i mean putting putting myself in in the shoes of a consumer that makes complete sense if if a physician or you know whoever else I'm dealing with in healthcare is empathetic about the situation and able to just help understand my concern and help address it, I, I'm normally understanding about it. Versus someone who's really defensive. If if I interpret someone as being defensive, my natural inclination is to assume that something wrong happened. Um, that that's. Yeah. That, you know, whether right or wrong, I I think that's probably our natural response. And so I think that's probably a takeaway, not just for for healthcare but any field is. You know, having having empathy for people and kind of meeting them where they are and really taking the time to help. Help them understand. Um, I'm about to get into other topics, so I'm going to hold off. I, I, I had. I have some strong opinions about people getting experience in their career and working in customer service, but I'm going to hold off on that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> cool. Hey, um, yeah, let's let's go there pretty soon. Tell me, you know, where did you grow up? What type of kid were you? What were your interests? And then uh, tell us about your first job, maybe.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I I grew up in a small town in North Carolina called Kenston. Uh, K- Kenston's a, an interesting place. You know, quick quick history on Kenston. Um, a, a lot of people think that it's Kingston and it's not, but it used to be. So um, pre-Revolutionary War, it was Kingston. And then post-Revolutionary War, they dropped the G. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a cool town and it's definitely been on the map for a long time. Um, Kingston is, is a great place and, in my opinion, was kind of a, a perfect place for me to grow up. Um, I, I was a minority in Kingston in and, and almost every school that I went to and i love that um you know growing up just starting in preschool in kindergarten it wasn't you know me as a a white male surrounded by other caucasians it was i mean there was a, a really great diversity of you know a lot of different backgrounds and uh it's interesting just talking to other people our age who didn't have that that um experience i just a lot of what has happened recently, you know, I feel like I was so blind to it in terms of, you know, racism and prejudice. Um, I, obviously I wasn't ignorant to it. I knew that it existed. I just didn't think that it was quite on the scale that, that it is. And, and I do think it's because things were so integrated in Kenston, but um, yeah, that was, that was my, my childhood. And in terms of what I was like when I was a boy, um, there's not a whole lot to do in Kinston man. We we had <laughs> we we played a lot of backyard basketball. We uh, bought and traded a lot of basketball cards. So pretty much it was just basketball in Kinston. Um, you know while, actually while I'm talking about basketball in Kinston I got to plug this. So a uh, ESPN put out an article a few years ago that talked about Kinston being this mecca for NBA talent. So they ran the numbers, and uh, Kinston is the highest producer per capita of uh, NBA talent in the world.
0: Is there a minimum of, let's call it, four or five NBA athletes from the town?
1: That That's a fantastic question. So, yeah, if, if you were to look at which uh you know which city produced the most nba talent it's, it's absolutely going to be what one of the metropolitan areas but yeah they they have but i mean
0: per capita like if, if it's a town of a hundred people and you got one athlete like yeah that's probably like <laughs> tops in the nation but like do you have more than three
1: yeah yeah absolutely i, I think since the 80s i want to say there's been five or six so more recently oh. brandon ingram is is from kenston uh i believe he plays for the pelicans um who else jerry stackhouse is from kinston if you were a basketball fan in the the 90s and 2000s i think he's now the the coach of vanderbilt um but yeah there there's been several others just between the the 80s and and now and it's been um yeah it, it's i don't know what it is but there's a documentary that was put out recently called something in the water uh, it's on Amazon, but uh, it's yeah. If if you're interested in in you know high school basketball and just talent development on a high school level, it's really interesting to check out.
0: If if your um your hometown is the subject of a documentary called Something in the Water, aren't you thankful it's not coming from Flint? <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, there there may actually be something in the water as well. Uh, that you know maybe may something else to look into. But yeah, re- relieved that uh, it's there's nothing known about the water quality there right <laughs>
0: <laughs> maybe some fertilizer or something i don't know yeah um, it was
1: weird yeah it was weird when so i played my jv year in uh high school and you know i'm not a short guy i'm i'm 6'3 and i was definitely one of the shorter guys on the team we had our whole starting five got division 1 scholarships and uh, one of the guys on my team went to the nba he he was only there for i think 3 or 4 years but uh, still still impressive
0: that sounds like some high quality ball. My my uh, school in South Carolina, we had one one player go to like some small school. I don't know if it was a small D one or maybe D two, but um, I so I, it's hard for me to like relate to people who have like all stars on their team. I'm like, what was that like? Because the best on my team was still a ball. It was better than everyone else on the school, and everyone looked up to him as like you know the the athlete. But um, but even still, it was like you know relatively small school, no one's heard of. So it's got to be interesting when you've got these big time recruits on campus.
1: Yeah, it, it's a little deflating as as someone not super talented like myself. I I went to a private school for middle school, and you know I was I was tall for my age. I was used to kind of posting up, and then I get into to Kenston High and they're telling me I need to be bringing the ball at the court which was just not going to happen and so obviously I didn't <laughs> last beyond my my sophomore year but uh yeah it's, it's Kitson's is a great place
0: nice and did you have any part-time jobs in high school
1: I did man um I, I mowed grass for my dad for his office my dad was a general contractor they did commercial buildings and uh, I, I mowed the grass at his, at his office that was my first job but my 1st, real job, um, I worked at uh, a minor league baseball team called at the time, the Kinston Indians. I think they're now called the down east wood ducks. Um, yeah, they, they were actually a, little, a little more progressive than uh, the Washington Redskins or or, or Cleveland Indians. They, they changed their name a while back. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I made pretzels and funnel cakes 1 year and uh, my 2nd year, once I had uh, turned 18. They had me uh as the third base beer man, uh, which in hindsight I, I don't know that they should have had me doing that. I I have never had alcohol before, but you know, putting an 18-year-old in charge of beers in hindsight seems like probably not a great idea.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um so you mentioned your dad uh working with him. Tell me a little about your father. What's what's one thing that he nailed as a as a dad? Um, if you have any stories, would love to hear them. Oh, man,
1: my 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 dad has kind of you know become like a uh, like a, a low budget version of, of Chuck Norris in, in the city of Kinston, uh, just with the folklore that surrounds him. He he is uh, an interesting guy. Um, th- I, you know, that's I'm really the,
0: excited to hear what you have to say right now. That's a quite a setup.
1: <laughs> it, 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 <laughs> sure. is a big, well, it's it, I think it's it's more humorous than anything else. He's he is um, he's just an, an interesting guy. He's hilarious, but he also has just a really um, uh, short patience level for uh, Imperfection and uh, stupidity, and uh, he—he's very much a blue-collar guy. Grew up in a, a little tiny town called Deep Run, uh, and you know he was a, a high school basketball star. Unfortunately, I couldn't follow in his shoes, but um, he is just like this super uh, happy-go-lucky guy that everybody knows. He's kind of friends with everyone, but at the same time, he. He he can kind of flip a switch, and if, if something's not going right, he's he's going to get it right. <laughs> um, I, I don't have any amazing stories. I, I I feel like I've let you down with the Chuck Norris reference, but um, I'll I'll have to think on those and, and let you know sometime. But they're they're definitely out there. Um, uh, yeah, it, for sure. Kind of,
0: there's, there's got to be a time where he's opened up a can on somebody.
1: He, he has, and that's probably, uh, yeah, that's, that's probably an offline conversation and not a (laughs) podcast conversation.
0: (laughs) Cool. I want to hear it.
1: Yeah, actually, I've got a few of those now that I, I think you, you just, uh, helped refresh my memory, but yeah, those are probably all non-podcast conversations. So, you know, in terms of, you know, probably the one, uh, maybe the top thing that I feel like I've gotten from him. Um, I, I would definitely say it's work ethic and just doing your absolute best. He um, regularly—this was every Saturday—he would never let me sleep in, which you know, in hindsight, I'm still kind of bitter about. I'm, I'm irritated about mm-hmm. it. He he would wake me up probably at about 8:30, uh, definitely before nine and we, we would do yard work together and uh, you know there was never a week that I was getting out of that and just in doing yard work with him he would supervise me and if it wasn't done to perfection the work was redone until it was done the right way and man that was as a teenager you can probably imagine that that was not a fun Saturday morning you know, being heart done by your dad and, you know, not being able to sleep in, but looking back on that now, um, I, I definitely feel like his critical eye has um, been passed on to me. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not, I, I'm not a, an, an irrational perfectionist, but I definitely try to make sure that that work is done. Right. And uh, I do feel like that's probably been 1 of my success factors in my career. You know, I, I don't always I'm not always do, able to do things to perfection the way that I would like for them to be done, but that's okay. Um, you, you you do as much as you can, given the context. And uh, I, I definitely feel like I picked that up for my dad.
0: That's good that and that's um, it's great to have that skill to, to not have an irrational um, quest for perfection but to be able to be uh, your own critic in a helpful way that your your first draft at something may be pretty close to a final draft for what is needed, you know? Um, but also a fine line between the kid who gets, who kind of takes a beating and, and learns to hide in their shell. And how, I'm curious, did you just have thick skin or is it something like he was, able to deliver the message in a way that um, helped you receive it and maintain your confidence? Uh, tell me about how he went about that and or maybe it was how you received it.
1: So that that's a great question. Um, I think he had a great balance between um, getting riled up in the moment, but not letting that define our relationship. It, that was never a continuous thing. I would say that 95% of the time he was a a very supportive and loving dad, and I think that's what helped with the relationship. So you've probably heard the the mantra, Sean, that you know you you can't you can't really coach someone that you don't have a relationship with. And um, my dad knew that that he and I were close, and he knew what I was capable of, and I think that's why he'd get frustrated so much is because. He knew what my potential was and he he wanted to make sure that, you know, I was doing my very best. And so that it was never so much him just being angry just because the work wasn't done. Right. It's because I wasn't doing what he knew that I was capable of. And Mm. I always knew the place that he was coming from and I always knew what our relationship was, which, you know, he was just a super loving dad. Um, And so that that relationship is key. And it's something that I've had to. Kind of check myself on with my own kids because, you know, I, I like him and, you know, I'm, I'm critical about things. I want to make sure that things are done. Right. But I'm, I'm trying to train my kids to do the, the. I'm trying to train them to do their very best. Um, but in coaching them to do that, you have to have that relationship. First, they have to know that you are 100% behind them, that you support them, that you love them. Um, that that really is the key there.
0: Thank you for adding that color to help uh, me visualize the picture there that um, that's good. Yeah. Um, Okay, so tell me a little about your career journey. Did you go to college uh, knowing what you wanted to do when you grew up? What did your um, goals kind of twist or turn at any point and uh, walk me through your career path and how it landed you uh, where you are?
1: Yeah, great, great question. Um, so I originally was uh, interested in in being a chiropractor. So my, my brother-in-law, um, who, you know, I, I want to say maybe I was like 12 when um, my sister and, and he got married and uh, he, you know, went to chiropractic school and learned this great skill set. And I saw him, you know, heal people. And just as an aside, there's, there's a lot of polarizing opinions about chiropractors. I, I do think that, There are good chiropractors out there and and bad chiropractors, just as there are, you know, good, good and bad medical doctors, but I I am a believer in, um, the, the efficacy of it, uh, you know, to a certain extent. So, um, that fascinated me, uh, you know, being, being a chiropractor, being able to heal people without doing surgeries. Um, so I went. I did a a two year mission for uh, our church in Madagascar, and while I was there, I had the opportunity to be in some some leadership roles and I think the on the plane ride home uh that which was a long plane ride, it was like twenty <laughs> twenty six hours something like that uh that's a lot of time to think by yourself. <laughs> And I, I thought long and hard about, you know, what I want to do with the rest of my career and um, you know, what I felt like my my kind of superpowers in life were and, and how I could best leverage those. And when I got off that plane, I realized, you know, I probably I probably don't need to be a doctor. There, there's probably uh, better ways for me to use my talents. And so, um, you know, I kind of went on a a quest to figure out what out there might make the most sense and had a lot of conversations with a lot of people. Um, My older brother was a hospital administrator at the time and uh, had a lot of conversations with him and uh, the appeal of working in the medical field, I think was still pretty high for me because I I really wanted to work in an industry where they're, they're doing something good. They're trying to help people. And, uh, you know, the hearing about what he did and how he was able to influence patient care um, was really appealing to me. And I think the leadership component was really appealing. And so. That's really kind of when I made up my mind that uh, I was going to go into hospital administration. So um, I, uh, after I got back from Madagascar, I went to uh, NC State, got my undergraduate degree in uh, accounting. And just because I, I wanted to understand the balance sheet, I, I knew that, you know, I was going to go on to get an MBA. So I, I immediately went into my master's right after college. Um, I went to university of North Texas, which is extremely random, but that, that is, I, I wanted to wind up in a big metropolitan area where there were lots of job opportunities. And so in you know, North Texas, it's got good proximity to Dallas and Fort Worth. And I knew that there would be um, some, some good opportunities out there. My brother, my older brother, who's in hospital administration was also out there. And so I wanted to you know, be able to tap into his network. Um, that was a big gamble on my part. Um, University of North Texas was not known for their uh, uh, hospital administration MBA. Uh, in fact, when I got there, uh, I was talking with my program advisor kind of on on opening night and I just asked him, hey, is, is this a, a good program to be in if I want to be a, 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 a hospital CEO? And he looked at me and he said. No, no, it's not. We're really kind of a, a young program. Like, I don't know why you would have come here for that. I'd really recommend you changing your concentration into something else that we have more experience in if you want to be a CEO. And I said, "Um, well, um, well, you know, I'll I'll take that. uh, I'll I'll take that into consideration, but uh, I'm probably just going to stick with it. And uh, I definitely did. I did stick with it. And and really, Sean, the quality of the program in in terms of the the, um, courses was was great. And it was on par with everything that I had at, at NC State. Definitely what was lacking, though, was the support. And I think the lack of connections from alumni, they really had not had any level of success in getting their graduates placed into other roles. But again, that. I think I was younger at the time. I just did not spend enough time vetting. Programs, I just I knew that I wanted to get an MBA with that concentration and I knew strategically location wise where I wanted to be and to me that that made the most sense but um, that was a a really really big gamble. Um, While I was in my masters um, my program advisor kind of saw my drive and and, um, kind of tapped me to help him develop the curriculum. I actually helped write one of the classes (laughs) Uh, specifically I helped to create tests uh, for future semesters, uh, whether or not, they're still using those tests. I, I doubt it. I'm, I'm sure the books have changed since then. And I, yeah, um, but uh, I did. Uh, end up creating my own internship with a local hospital. So I, I, I was trying to get a paying job and you know this was in 2008, which is when the economy tank and no one was hiring. I, I couldn't get a job at, you know, at, at a hospital without any accounting experience. And so I took a non-paid marketing internship uh, and uh, did that for free for about eight months. And that was fantastic experience. I didn't love that I wasn't getting paid, but I knew that I had to get the experience somehow. And, uh, you know, they, they gave me exposure to a lot of areas, and I, I really was able to kind of learn from an insider's perspective how hospitals work, even though it was from the marketing department's perspective. Um, while I was in that department, I talked to the department head and just let her know, you know, I, I want to be a hospital CEO. Um, I, I really need to continue to get more uh, internship experience while I'm getting my MBA. I'm not ready to take a role right now. And I just asked her, you know, what were her thoughts on trying to, you know, network with the front office? You know, did she think it was possible, if you know, for me to work with them and to try to create an internship there? And she had a conversation with um, the the hospital administrator, the the president, and uh, just kind of put in a good word for me, and they made it happen. And so. I, we created this kind of curriculum for me to learn, um, the, the operations of the hospital. And so I did that for another 18 for, an, sorry, another eight months while I was finishing up my masters. And, uh, that was fantastic experience. I mean, it was a, a lot more than what I had gained access to in marketing, but, um, you know, they gave set up rotations in each area of the hospital. I mean, I, I was working with the uh, maintenance guys, just kind of seeing what they go through. I was working with uh, the housekeepers. I worked in the kitchen. Uh, There was like a Colombian woman named Alba and she kept calling me baby and that made me really uncomfortable, but it was hilarious just kind of (laughs) working with all these different people in the hospital that I probably wouldn't have otherwise uh, gotten access to. And I, I do think that that, experience even though you know 16 months in total not being paid um, a lot of people would view that as just a you know kind of frustrating but I even though they didn't even though I didn't get paid anything for it um, the experience was well worth anything they could have paid me um, just gaining access to all those areas seeing what people go through on a day-to-day basis uh not just assuming what i think they go through but really experiencing it with them that was just totally life-changing for me um that's so, awesome i love yeah.
0: i love the um heart of someone willing to go work for free um to make something happen also how did you finance that was it a case of oh, we're already you know getting some student debt to pay for school might as well bump it up a little bit um oh, you know a lot of people can't afford to work for free for 18 months how did you make that happen if it's not too personal
1: I, I had a sugar mama and it was my wife um fortunately when we got married she already had her master's in social work and so um she she got a job as soon as we moved to texas and she put she put me through school just on her salary um you know, social workers don't, don't exactly rake in the dough. And so, you know, we, we lived, uh, pretty tight there for, for a while. But, uh, you know, with, right. without having any kids, it, it, it worked fine. You know, we, we had enough to survive. I, I was still getting student loans, you know, to pay for the tuition. But, uh, yeah, I mean, we definitely could not have done it without my wife. And, uh, yeah, it, it, it worked out. It worked out great.
0: Cool. Good for you, man. And I love also the fact that when you went through a very deflating experience on the first night of grad school, (laughs) you didn't you didn't uh, let that kill you. You know, Um, that's so funny in hindsight.
1: In in hindsight, looking back on that, I kind of question myself like, man, what what was I thinking? One, you know, not having researched the programs more, you know, not understanding how important that is. Because, you know, when you're getting your first job, um, you know, even though the curriculum may be similar from one program to the next, the where you have your degree from makes a huge difference, whether people like it or not. And that's the support structure. I think for me is, is really the deciding the characteristic when people are looking at graduate programs. And so, Sean, you, you, of course, were a lot smarter than I am in more ways than one, one, you know, doing that research and, uh, you went to Duke, right? Uh, yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it, it, I probably couldn't have even gotten into Duke. And so, you know, kudos to you for, for doing that research and not just trying to take, you know, the, the simple and cheap way out. Um, you know, I'm sure that was a, a major sacrifice and investment for you, but, um, the, the quality of people in your program and then the support around your program, I'm sure that that has, that will, that that has paid off and will continue to pay off for you in the future.
0: Yeah. I will say the support at Fuqua was uncanny. I mean, I, like, I was just blown away at everyone. I mean, the, like this is clearly not a for-profit institution because they've got like just people standing by like proactively reaching out with everything like if you ever need anything let us you know and i'm like wow this is incredible i mean some and some people really uh soaked it up while they could i um anyway but it, your your um point on on um going to north texas reminds me of when i was when I was an undergrad, there was a brief minute where I was um, very interested in going to consulting. I did an internship at uh, 1 of the big 4. there's also, you know, um, the big 3 strategy consulting firms. And I remember reading an article by 1 of the head recruiters and um, the question that he was asked was like, why do you guys always go to the same top you know, 510 schools and occasionally dip into the top 20? um because there's talent everywhere and he's like we're not tied to the schools we're t- we go where the talent is but it's a um i don't know it's self-reinforcing cycle where the kids go to those schools because that's where the opportunities are and the recruiters go to those schools because that's where the kids are that they you know the the kids that tend to do well on standardized tests that have good GPAs that are better at structured problem solving whatever so um that's the the challenge it's not that the academic curriculum and the quality of teaching is any better necessarily um you can learn the same skills at any school but it's just that the recruiters go there because there's the con- a known concentration of talent whereas um they know you could get any you could have a a top performing kid come out of any school it's just that they want to invest where they know they're gonna get the highest return which is uh Statistically more likely at those schools. So,
1: oh, absolutely. And, and if I was a recruiter, I would be doing the exact same thing. You're, you're going to spin your wheels, trying to find the diamonds in the rough. Um, but yeah, mo- most most uh, people are going to do that research and, and really cluster into the programs that uh, you know have that great reputation. And I think, you know. If I had been more aware, I think if my if my dad and my parents had had more experience with higher education, then I I probably would have known. But, you know, I think my dad was either the first or second in his family who went to school uh, post post high school. And, uh, you know, that his dad died whenever he was 15. And so he just didn't have a ton of support around him. And, you know, he was doing the best that he could with the information that he had. And, I think to some extent, I, I kind of was as well, just trying to blaze my my own path without having a, a ton of uh, awareness of what was going on. Um, yeah, The
0: good thing is, like, uh, you know, who cares? You man, it doesn't matter where you went to school after your first job or two. You know, it's like, who are you? Did you come in with that same energy that you were talking about? Boom. Then then you can get wherever you want to go. You know,
1: um, I, I think that's so. true. Yeah, that's that's 100 yeah. percent true. Um, Sean, one other thing I was going to mention, just in terms of how I got to where I'm at, um, there is kind of this secret sauce for hospital administrators. So if anyone out, you know, who who listens to your podcast is as a family member that's trying to get into the field, there really is kind of like a uh, uh, a secret passageway to to uh, advance pretty quickly in the field um and and fortunately you know i kind of stumbled across it just as i was working with the hospital president and the associate administrator uh, in that internship they told me about this program that existed uh called a fellowship um like an administrative fellowship that uh, were available to people who were kind of coming fresh out of uh, graduate school I, i knew nothing about that but uh that knowledge really kind of changed the trajectory of my career. So when they told me about that, I searched for it and found that there was this listing online of about, um, I think it was about 75 hospitals out there that uh, offered this kind of postgraduate uh, fellowship where you, you come in, they, uh, they, they pay you, they give you a job, but they really kind of train you to To be a hospital administrator, and uh, you know it, it's probably not the same salary that that you know you could make doing consulting or or getting some other uh, full time role, but um, it was really kind of life changing so I went to several and was just fortunate enough to uh, get the role at uh, uh, Cone Health here in Greensboro uh where I've been ever since but um for for 2 years I reported to our chief operating officer who's now our, our current CEO and um they gave me exposure to all areas of the health system you know finance HR strategy uh operations all of those areas and that that also was life changing for me um yeah you know, I mentioned earlier Sean about my dad just you know being uh, a critical eye for my work I feel like that's kind of what I had with our current CEO as my boss for two years. Um, he in credit to him, he was not afraid to tell me exactly um, what I was doing right and what I had an opportunity to improve on. But he really did it in a, a patient, uh, a patient and um, uh, instructive way just so that I didn't come away feeling totally deflated about it. Um, but uh, his name's uh, Terry Aiken. He's currently now the, the CEO. And uh, I just, I can't say enough positive things about him. He really kind of helped change who I am as a leader and really just even as an individual, I just, I, I've learned so much from him. But uh, yeah, that that fellowship was life-changing. And For anyone who's trying to get into the field, that's exactly how to do it. Um, so I did that for two years. And, and after I came out, uh, they uh, asked me to be a, a director over uh, Neurology, which I knew nothing about, but I've kind of figured it out over time. I've worked with them since then and uh, I've gradually picked up uh, additional areas of responsibility. So I also work with um, critical care, gastrointestinal service line, uh, infectious disease and uh, nephrology. So that's what I'm currently doing.
0: Nice, man. And um very fortunate that you found the fellowship, found up a cone and then kind of getting mentored by the future CEO. That's uh, a fortunate series of events, man. That's
1: great. Yeah. It, yeah. I do want to mention too, Sean, just the value of, of networking and just how small industries are. Um, when I was applying to fellowships, I just mentioned to a few people at my hospital that I had applied. I was talking to a nurse leader and she said, Oh my gosh, you applied to, to cone health. Like I, I was a director there two years ago. I know the CEO. Let, let me reach out to him, and uh, put in a good word. And uh, I mean, what are the odds of that happening?
0: <laughs> that was coming from Texas to a place in Greensboro, is that right?
1: Yeah, yeah. She had worked at the same organization, and that was just so random. And then um, I wow. also mentioned to to my to the hospital president in Texas that I had applied there, and he said, "Oh wow, I you know the." the uh, Chief Operating Officer used to be a uh, a president here in Texas. I used to, you know, be on a, a board with him. Let me let me shoot him an email and just, you know, let him know that uh, you know I can vouch for you. Uh, and and so, man, net networking in that particular instance definitely paid off. And it's not a situation where you know it, I just got a job because of who I knew. It's that I, I knew I knew people who knew other people who could vouch. Uh, you know, for my, my work ethic and, um, uh, just right. How, right. How I go up. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's the, I think some people who with, um, lack real world experience, maybe think networking is like, oh, it's just knowing people, but like, no, it's, um, knowing people, but also, uh, people who have seen the quality of your output. So, um, but that. So cool. Like you said, that's um, that's a miracle that some two people in Texas at your hospital you're working at happen to know very influential people at Cone Health. So that is really cool. Yeah. Um, hey, let's uh, tell me when you have a little spare time. No, know you've got a, a family busy job. Um, what are your hobbies when you do have spare time?
1: Uh, yeah, great, great question. And fortunately, I have a bit more spare time now than I did a couple of years ago. I, I did try to uh, uh, do, do a, a little side project that tried to uh, launch uh, a website. Uh, it was a software as a service based on a freemium model and uh, boy, um, doing a startup on the side in addition to having a full time job is, is not for the faint of heart. Um, I think in, in, talking to, uh, you know, startup advisors and, and, uh, investors at the time, one of the things I continually heard was, um, when are you going to make your startup your full time job? Because it's just not manageable. And, you know, at, at the time it was so early on and, and, you know, that just seemed outlandish to me. Like I, I have an infinite motor. I've got it. Well, that's not the case. Kids get old and, uh, they, the older they get, the the more uh, support they need. And uh, I, I found out pretty quickly that that was just totally, totally unmanageable. But um, I, I love. I love learning about startups. I love brainstorming and coming up with ideas. Uh, I will probably try to do that again at, at some point later on in my career. The, the timing right now probably isn't great, but um, I, I'm fascinated by innovation and uh, I, I'm fascinated by. Uh, just coming up with optimal solutions for things, and so that that's a passion of mine. Um, other other things that I love to do on the side, besides hanging out with my kids, I'm a huge fan of fantasy football. Um, there, there's not a whole a whole lot of things in life that I can say that you know I'm I'm close to being an expert on, but if there is anything. Besides hospital administration, that I feel like I'm an expert on, it's probably fantasy football. <laughs> nice. Um, and investing is really fun. Um, I love learning about uh, companies and, and, and uh, you know investing in those. I'm, I'm really interested right now in uh, digital asset investing and something that uh, Sean, I think you and I have had some conversations about over the past few years um interesting times (laughs) right now with that so yeah those are some of the the main things i play guitar i do a a church talent show every now and then but yeah that's the extent of my hobbies
0: nice that sounds like you've got quite a few interests there Um, (laughs) okay random question that i'm recently uh incorporating into the list here when you need to eat something quickly on the road or just we could go to restaurant. Don't lie and act like you never have fast food. Everyone wants to act like they don't, but what are the top <laughs> three, what's your like top three favorite fast food or fast casual restaurants?
1: Yeah. So, so being a, a North Carolina boy, I've got to give love to Bojangles. Uh, that's, yeah. you know, you can't, you can't go wrong there. Um, yeah, I,
0: unless you have work to do in the afternoon, I concur with that statement. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that that there's a lot of calories in there, and uh, yeah, you you may have to uh, jog around the hospital before you uh, sit down, or jog around your workplace before you sit or sit down and do work. Um, so yeah, Bojangles, Chick fil A, um, Five Guys, th- those are kind of our go tos if we're on road trips. Um, I, I'd probably also throw in Chipotle into there. My my wife and I can't get enough of Mexican food, and so um, yeah, big fans of tacos.
0: Cool what is a purchase of $100 or less that has most positively impacted your life in the last year?
1: Yeah, um, and, and thanks for sending the, the questions ahead of time because I I probably would have struggled to remember. So um, I will unequivocally say that my, my top purchase that uh, has impacted me the most is an app called FitBod. Um, now, it was close to a 100 bucks for a subscription for a year. Um, I am a, a tightwad when it comes to apps. If, you know, if, if there's any add-ons or uh, in-app purchases, I'm not going there. I don't do that. If an app is like a dollar, uh, I'm going to buy the, I'm going to get the, the free Like a a free alternative to it. I just don't like spending money on apps for some reason, which, you know, maybe I need to get past that and give some love to the great developers of the world. But, um, yeah, when the pandemic first hit and, uh. You know, no, 1 was really able to get out of the house much and and work out. I I didn't have a whole lot else to do, but, but work out. Um, I have uh, a spare bedroom in our basement and I have converted that into a gym. And, uh, you know, having a gym in your house is is awesome, but uh, th- there's also potential for you to do a lot of looking at your phone and not a lot of working out and, and that frequently would happen to me. I'd get distracted answering emails or looking at tweets or whatever. Um, and, and so I found this app called Fitbod, and the great thing about it is you can customize what your workout goal is. So are you trying to bulk up? Are you trying to uh, get slim? Are you trying to get stronger? Um, It factors in the equipment that you have access to, and it factors in how much time you have for a workout, and then it will spit out a workout routine for the day, and it keeps track of what you yeah, and it keeps track of what you do every day. It keeps track of your sets and reps, and so over time, it's it's asking you to to do more weight, uh, more more reps. But it, it adjusts all the exercises that you do, so that you're getting a full body workout routine and and uh, you know working all your muscles, not just the beach muscles, which is you know a problem sometimes. Um, but that that has been fantastic. And, and since I downloaded that app, I have been consistently working out three times a week which is uh more than what i could say that i've done since college
0: good for you that's actually sounds like a really cool app um i like that idea
1: yeah i, uh, I highly recommend it I'll, I'll i actually have a a free trial that i can send you so uh, I'll, I'll text that to you afterwards
0: okay cool uh tell me about the book you've given away most as a gift
1: Oh, man, I, that's yeah, I, I don't I haven't given away a ton of gifts, a, a ton of books as gifts. Um, I, I'm not a huge book guy either, uh, which, you know, if you listen to podcasts like that's, you know, a, a huge chunk of what people talk about or are, are the books that have changed people's lives. And, you know, that's been probably my biggest weakness as a person is that I just I don't have a great attention span for books. I read a ton, but I'm mostly reading uh, you know, articles and short snippets of things. You know, This is sad, Sean, but I'm even in a book club. I'm in, I'm in a book club with a famous author um, who you know, has had movies done about his books. He buys me the books to read for the book club and I still don't entirely read them all. Um, you know I'll, I'll scan through them, I'll get the gist of it. but I was even in high school, I was definitely more of a Cliffs Notes guy. Um, I do have audible. I, I listen to uh, you know some kind of you know I, I listen to a lot of fictional books uh, on on Audible, but I, I haven't given away a ton. I've given away the Book of Mormon a lot, so maybe we could say that as a gift, but uh, yeah, I have a ton of books
0: okay when you were a teenager did you have any authority figures that didn't expect you to become a successful adult
1: <laughs> you know uh i am sure they existed <laughs> but if if they did I, I wasn't i wasn't privy to it I, I wasn't aware of how they truly felt about me um, some of my young men's leaders at church probably felt like I, I wasn't going to amount to a whole lot because <laughs> I, I joked around a lot in class and it was hard for me to get serious. But uh, no, I, I, I don't, I wasn't really aware of anyone who I knew kind of had it out for me and just knew that you know it wasn't going to amount to much. There was an assistant principal in high school that I, I think thought I was pretty sorry, um, but uh, I, I didn't have a high regard for him either. So. <laughs> I want to to you.
0: Yeah. Um, all right, in the last five years, what new belief, behavior or habit has most improved your life?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a, a great question. So um, probably like four or five years ago, Sean, I did a, uh, a 360 uh, review with different people that I work with at the hospital. Uh, so I got feedback from my, uh, my, my direct supervisor. I got feedback from uh, some of our, our top leaders. I got feedback from my, my direct reports that uh, include you know both uh, nurses and physicians, and nurse practitioners, PAs, uh, other administrative staff. And I, I did it not because there was a, a major issue out there. I just, I truly wanted, I want to continue to perfect myself and uh one of the things that was pretty consistent on there was that you know i had an opportunity to kind of tighten up my my organization and just tracking of things and you know not letting things fall off and that was really helpful feedback for me just to be aware of that they said it and i knew it immediately like yeah i i I will fess up to that i do need to be better about it i think keeping track of a to-do list is is super hard there's there is no one right way to do it. You know, you can look at articles and, and see what other people do, but the, the the bottom line is that different things work for different people. And so I, after kind of figuring out some some, after trying a few different ways, found something that works really well for me. And uh, that has really helped me to stay organized and on top of everything that I need to get done at any particular day. So I, in Outlook, I just make a recurring invite or a recurring event that just reoccurs every Monday. And um, I, I print I print that off and I make handwritten notes on it just because I get more to dos throughout the week. But on that list are all my to do's that I have going on. And that sheet it has 2 columns and it is completely full and there's probably like 50 items on there, but there's some things highlighted in red. There's some that's, and those are the ones that need to get done you know, with soon ASAP. There's some that are highlighted in yellow, just to make sure that I'm on top of it. And then there are others that are just kind of parking lot items that I need to get to eventually. Um, but yeah. Do, uh, every week I'll make notes on it and then at the end of the week I'll update that electronic document just so that I can you know maintain an electronic version of it as I go on throughout my week um, you know that that may not be the exact best way to keep track of to-do items I'm I'm sure there's more effective ways but that's the way that it has really worked well for me and as a result you know no, nothing's fallen off my radar it all goes on my sheet
0: Good. Yeah. I'm same uh, opinion on that. Like who, there's no one way to do it, but find the one that works and uh, that you can stick to. And that's great. All right. Let's, uh, let's talk a little about our family. So tell me a little about the family and maybe
1: describe your parenting style. <laughs> it's a good thing. My wife isn't on the podcast. She might describe my parenting style as different. <laughs> um, <laughs> So uh, I so uh, my wife and I've been married now uh, coming up on 13 years. Um, We have four kids, two girls, two boys. Uh, My oldest is nine and a half. Uh, I have another one who just turned another girl who just turned eight. And then I have two boys that uh, turned six today. Uh, They were uh, twins born Uh, a a little while ago uh one of whom has a uh a, a pretty significant heart defect um but uh he's he's doing great and uh man i i have to say that uh being a dad is is awesome particularly now but uh you know early on when we had when our twins were born we had four under the age of four and uh and then, of course, you know, one in the hospital who spent, you know, nine months in the hospital for his first year. And that is uh, not something that I would wish on my worst enemy. That is uh, yeah. H- having having a, a ton of kids under the age of four is hard enough as it is. Having one kid under the age of four is <laughs> hard enough as it is. Uh, but uh, yeah, uh, we, we've definitely been through some some rough times, but uh, definitely makes you grateful when, when things are going well.
0: Absolutely. Um, so yeah, tell us what your parenting style.
1: Yeah. So it's, um, it's not, uh, tremendously different from, uh, my dad's style. Although I, so (laughs) probably the one thing I differ from my dad on is that I'm a lot more, uh, organized, uh, particularly with the garage. (laughs) I, uh, my dad spent a lot of time looking for things and his garage was a mess and he kept a lot of stuff. And so uh, I, I've tried to kind of learn learn from him on that. But um, yeah, I, you know, I, I try to be I try to first and foremost focus on the relationship and make sure that my kids know that uh, I love them. I support them and then I'm their biggest fan and I I try to make sure that they know how i feel about them and how much i appreciate their their great qualities um, just so that they can have that confidence you know confidence from parents uh is is everything to a kid uh, they they really need to to know that it's part of their self-awareness uh and, and part of their development they need to know what what they're they're great at um, And and then similarly you know having that relationship with them allows you to then Help them focus on, uh, you know, learning and growing and developing themselves and, and getting better at, at, at things. Um, I'm a really big believer in order and consistency and structure. Uh, kids absolutely need that. I, I'm not a Nazi about it. You know, we we definitely have times when when things aren't structured, but I think having some core. Uh, expectations is is really important for kids, particularly, you know, responsibilities. So, something that we just implemented this year, um, my, my kids are, are like, all kids are big fans of dessert and uh, I think they kind of came to expect that as an automatic. And, uh, you know, my wife and I were con- continually frustrated by messes that they would make our kids have a lot of toys and they like to do arts and crafts and they will leave their junk everywhere. And so we had to kind of implement an expectation that you know going forward, if they want to have dessert, there are some uh, conditions of satisfaction that have to be met, which is that our basement is clean and uh, that the dishwasher is emptied. And uh, so, yeah, I, st- structure is my parenting style. Uh, I, I like to set expectations up front And, uh, to help help manage those expectations so that, uh, you know, they're learning discipline and, and learning accountability.
0: I like that very important. Do you have any family traditions or habits that have been particularly helpful or fun?
1: Yeah, great question. Um. It's always tougher as a young family to like, you know, if you, if you have traditions and you're a young family, you're probably carrying on the same traditions from, from, you know, the, the family that you grew up in or your wife's family. Um, you know, I think we have small things that we do, but I would say that the thing that I look forward to the most is something that we borrowed from my, my wife's family. That we all kind of do together uh, for Christmas, which is um, every year we pick a different country. To uh, kind of uh, recognize and celebrate for Christmas, and we try to learn about their customs, and so we will celebrate Christmas the way that that you know, doing some of the things that that particular country does, and so on. Christmas Eve, we will all go out to a particular restaurant, and so you know if if we're celebrating in the past that you know we've done Brazil, and so we ate a Brazilian steakhouse. Uh, in the past, we you know did Japan. Uh, and so we ate it like a Japanese steakhouse. Um, one year we did Madagascar because that's where I went on my mission. And so I, I helped uh, make food that year. Uh, and then afterwards, we will you know do games uh, kind of based on the, the types of games and, and customs that they do in that particular country. But um, I, I love that we do that because it really kind of helps you, you know, connect with the rest of the world. It's, you know, not just being, you know, I'm an American and uh, America rules and all that stuff. I am very patriotic and and I love our country, but it is good to, you know, be aware of other cultures and respect other cultures. And um, that's just been really fun to do. And just learning and uh, doing something different every year. We definitely look forward to it every year.
0: That is cool. I like that. And you said you've been married for 13 years. Uh, how are you a better husband now than three to five years ago?
1: Oh boy. Um, I, I think the older I get, the more, uh, appreciative I am of my wife and just all that she does, particularly right now, you know, with the kids doing distance learning. And, you know, my wife is, she has, she works remotely. She, uh, Teaches social work for BYU Idaho online, um, but having to do that job in addition to like managing the the kids' schooling, it's just super super tough. And so I I, I do feel like I've become uh, more appreciative of my wife and more protective of her. Uh, I think just knowing how much I'm not around during the daytime. I'm I'm at I'm at work, but. Um, Having been here during the days, I know what it's like and how demanding our kids can be, and so I think I've become a lot more protective of her. Uh, I think I'm more aware of when I can see that she's starting to burn out and when uh, she she needs a break. Which is, you know, given how <laughs> rambunctious my kids are, the, those breaks are needed frequently. But I think just being more aware of my wife's needs and how I can support her versus you know having things on autopilot. Um, Sean, I, I don't know how you are or, or how you know your listeners are, but for me, um, I tend to focus on uh, problem areas. And so, it, you know, if something's not broke, let's not try to fix it. And I think the uh, the the downside to that is that you know there there, there could be an issue brewing, and it 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 you know may get out of control if you let it continue to to get that way. And so. I've really tried not that I've had any issues with with my wife, but I think with anybody on an emotional level, you know, stress can you know, really impact people. And uh, and uh, kids can definitely create a, a lot of stress. And so I think you know, just me trying to be more aware, more empathetic uh, about my wife and just recognizing when when she needs a break and, and trying to protect her from our kids. I, I do think I've gotten better about that she has helped me to get better about that but uh it's something that i feel like i've I've improved
0: good good man yeah i i can relate in a lot of ways there it's um such a challenging job to be a a a stay-at-home mom especially with either with you know with a lot of kids and then i can't imagine having a you know her having a part-time job there but it's such a marathon grind with Hardly any feels like there's there's certainly no finish lines and not even many, like. Milestones to get excited about, at least for the person who's really good at uh, task completion. Who's like a go getter, you know, then you get in this marathon slog of, like, whining and diapers and and constant constant need, you know, that's. um. Stay-at-home moms need a lot of support and understanding because that's
1: uh, that's brutal. They definitely do, and I mean, I imagine. think dad. I try to give dads a disclaimer based off of what I personally experienced. Anytime they have new kids, which is that um, kids are super tough for really the the first four years. But if you know they if they go into it knowing that you know that's the expectation, they can kind of adjust accordingly. Um, but really, after kids turn four, I, I think that's really that's really kind of the sweet spot for at least for me personally as a dad. Because then I feel like I can coach and see see the results in real time. Um, you know, of you know kids learning and interacting and adjusting. It it is it is so tough though. we you know working with kids whenever they're you know. Uh, under the age of, of two, under the age of three, and just <laughs> the, yeah. the irrational um, responses to things can be so, so frustrating just when compounded on top of everything else that uh, young couples are going through. And so, um, yeah, that's w- once you get past that, though, that really that, that is such a special time to you know, have kids that age that can you know a- adapt and, and be coachable.
0: Okay, folks. We heard it here. Jeremy's style of parenting is wake me up when they're four.
1: <laughs> see, see for your grown. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, all right. How do, mental toughness and accountability and ownership are important principles for all kids to learn. How do you go about instilling those principles in your kids?
1: Oh yeah. Um, so. Th- School work is, uh, you know, it, it can definitely be, uh, seem like busy work and monotonous and uh, ridiculous sometimes, but um, that that really is a, a prime opportunity to work with kids in helping to instill good values in them. So, responsibility, staying on top of their work, you know, not avoiding the tendency to do do their work for them. Um, helping them to think through uh, and, and rationalize uh, issues before just giving them the answer. Um, you know, when, when I do homework with my kids, it is, it's so tempting to just get through it as quickly as possible, but then they don't learn. And, uh, you know, then you're just kind of repeating the same thing over and over until maybe hopefully they get it. And so, you know, taking the time up front. To help them use their brains to think through and uh, discover truths on their own is just so important. Um, Helping them to understand responsibility and accountability on their own is so important. Um, Just avoiding the tendency to, to tell them what they need to do, but helping them to understand responsibility and to start to govern themselves. It, it's not always going to be perfect <laughs> and it's not it's not always going to be consistent but if they can go ahead and start getting exposure to it um that that really does help and i've absolutely seen that in in our oldest who's nine um just giving them that exposure early on is really really important nice do i don't you know if i a... answered your question sean Ho- hopefully I, I i did
0: oh that was good that was good um do you have a hard stop right now do you have like three to five minutes yeah, I do have three yeah, questions. Have,
1: yeah, I've got three five minutes. That's good.
0: Okay. As you look towards the future, tell me one thing you're optimistic about.
1: Um Sean, I'm optimistic about um the rising generations awareness about not just taking care of themselves, not just taking care of uh, you know, the, uh, you know, their, their city or their country or their family, but really being aware of issues that exist outside of their bubble. Um, it is easy to kind of get tunnel vision about things that are going on across the world and it's really kind of heartbreaking when we think about the standard of living that we have in, in some parts of the world and, and compared to others. And uh, I, I think I, I forget about that sometimes. And then when I do think about it, it it's, it's a heavy burden to think about and uh, it's really saddening. And there's a lot more that I wish that I could do. I wish you know, our country could do more. I wish that other countries would do more. But I, I think that um, whereas with older generations who were, were probably you know, focused on different areas just as our uh, economy has come more globalized as we've gotten the internet and have become uh, as we had better access to news and things that are going on across the world um, I do feel like the rising generations are becoming uh, more global aware of how we can make the world a better place and so I'm, I'm hopeful for that I'm hopeful that you know we have People who are, you know, in school right now who, you know, will, you know, many, many people who are in school who are going to be coming out and and focused on making the world a better place. I I am really hopeful for that. That sounds like a super cheesy answer, but uh, yeah, I mean, people deserve to have, uh, you know, a certain standard of living and, uh, you know, people obviously need to, to work for what they have that, that those things don't come without a cost but uh, yeah, I really want to see uh, you know, ha- everyone have the same opportunities. And so I, I'm, I'm hopeful that that will continue to, to improve over time.
0: Seems like we're making progress um, when you look at, when you zoom out,
1: um, tremendous progress being made.
0: Best yeah, time I've, to ever be on this planet.
1: Yeah, um, I, I completely agree. It's, it's really, really exciting. I'm excited for technology and just seeing where that continues to advance. Uh, so many things will improve on that. Um, you know, technology has its downsides sometimes, you know, social media is kind of the big culprit there that people talk about, but um, I do think the benefits far outweigh the, the downsides to it. So I, I'm, I'm hopeful for that too.
0: Yeah. Any shows or podcasts that you want to plug to listeners?
1: Yeah. Um, from an investing standpoint, you know, I, I get people who kind of reach out to me from time to time. Um, I, I would, I love Motley full money. Uh, they do a a podcast every Friday and they kind of cover what's, what's going on on a macro level. And then we'll talk about individual companies. Um, they really help you understand the the basics of investing and, uh, you know, investing can be hard, but it's, it's not really when you learn it. Uh, and so they're, they're a great, uh, resource to use. Um, I really like um, uh, Robin Hood snacks they do like a really quick podcast I want to say it's less than 10 minutes every day and they just kind of pick three companies to talk about and uh, I've enjoyed that as well and then um, there's a guy who is you know kind of a, an expert in the the uh, angel investment arena and he's also a uh, big proponent of digital asset investing his name's anthony pompliano uh he has a podcast called the pomp podcast he i don't know how he does it but he puts podcasts out like every day but that that man is um super intelligent and i really wish that i had more time to listen to him but uh I would recommend giving that a listen from time to time, or at least going through his list and finding some topics that you're interested in, because he is—he's brilliant.
0: Is that the dude you recommended me to follow when I lost all my money in crypto three years ago?
1: <laughs> hey, in all fairness, we we all lost a lot of money in crypto a <laughs> few years ago. But if you did the right thing, you were uh, you were diversified, and that a lot of that diversification was in Bitcoin, which is doing pretty good now what
0: so I was trying to explain to my wife and I, everything I told her was like based on info from three years ago but as far as I understand it bitcoin is the it, it's of course it's the name brand but the technology the underlying technology is awful where it can only um, process a certain number of transactions per second globally and that leads to major backlogs um like hours and hours for a transaction to process so it's last time I heard it, it seemed like Bitcoin isn't a practical currency for the future, um, but there's a a million different currencies vying with better technology vying to be the replacement, but no one has been able to offset them as like the name brand. Is that still the case? Was that right in the first place a few years ago? Is that still the case now? And like, is Bitcoin going to be The currency of the future, or is it just the name brand now that's going to give way to something that actually works?
1: Yeah, that's a a great question. And gosh, I'm certain that there are uh, thousands of people who could speak on this more, more eloquently and informed than I could. I mean, Sean, it sounds like you, you probably even know a a bit more about um, the currency side or the currency application for Bitcoin than I do. In my opinion, and this is kind of thinking back to 2017, uh, my understanding at the time, a lot of the reason that people were getting into Bitcoin wasn't so much from the uh, ability for it to function as a currency, but for it to function as a, a store of value uh, similar to gold with the limit on the supply of Bitcoin being kind of an, an upside on gold. Obviously, gold has some upsides. against Bitcoin. One is it's it's physical; you can actually touch it. It does exist, and two, it does have uses beyond just being a store of value. Um, but you know, the the one upside that Bitcoin has on on gold is um, gold is continually being discovered. We have no idea what the supply of gold is. You know, if if we get more advanced as society and start trying to extract, you know, gold from Meteors in space, which apparently they are, are quite rich with them, uh, you know, that's going to impact the supply of gold. Anyway, I, I'm rambling at this point, but um, I, I don't, it's hard for me to envision. Bitcoin replacing the dollar or any country's uh, currency right. that's being used every day. But in terms of it being a, an investment and a store of value, I think that's that now is the main reason to have some exposure to Bitcoin. Um I think we have if, if you look at economist opinions, we have gone in the past several years from Bitcoin being completely written off to um, uh, investment managers recommending that uh everyone have some exposure to Bitcoin. And that totally depends on where you're at and your uh, in your cycle. If you're closer to retirement, that that probably doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But um, from what I've seen, they really try to recommend that everyone have at least you know in, anywhere between one to five percent of your your portfolio in Bitcoin.
0: Ooh, five percent. That's uh, that would be quite an influx of cash into Bitcoin. Um,
1: ab- absolutely, and if, I think you know, it's probably that was been... a,
0: widely adopted anyway.
1: Right, yeah. and and again, Sean, it totally depends on where you're at uh, in your cycle. so if if you're getting closer to retirement that that probably does not make a whole lot of sense. If you're just getting started started out and you have years and years to invest, um that probably does make sense. Um, i I really do try to borrow my investment strategy from what I learned. Uh, I worked for an angel investment group. Um, just kind of on the side for fun uh, a few years ago and I helped them evaluate startups and the, the biggest thing that I learned from them that just makes complete sense is that, um, w- when you're investing in, in startups, you, you have a portfolio and if you have a, a cluster of 10 that you've invested in, um, one will probably provide, uh, uh the hope is that it will provide a 10 X return or more. Um. You may have another one that has a more modest return and then the rest will end up losing their return. But one investment out of that 10 is going to provide uh, a return that uh, really kind of trumps the rest of them. And so you really do want to um, diversify and spread that spread that around. Um, Obviously, with retirement investing, you don't want to get into to uh, really risky things. And so, you know, you're going to want to balance out that Bitcoin with a lot of uh, secure investments, but um, yeah, sure. something to keep on on your radar for sure.
0: Okay, all right, last question here. What is a good cause you wish more people knew about?
1: Uh, probably United Way. Um, we, our, our, my health system supports United Way every year. Uh, I knew nothing about it before I got involved uh, at, at my, my current employer. And uh, the thing that I love about them is they, they kind of are a connector between um, various community organizations. And so, you know, in any particular community, you probably have dozens, uh, maybe hundreds of different charities. And uh, the, the great thing about United Way is they link to all of them and uh, help um, kind of distribute funds to, to each of them. They, they help raise awareness about each of them. And so, Um, they're, they're a great organization to, to, um, you know, have on your radar to, to, uh, work with.
0: Yeah, I was, I had always heard of the United way, but had no idea what, what their, um, area was. And then I sat on a plane next to a guy who was like one of the heads of the United way in the, I think he's in the Durham area. Maybe could have been Raleigh or Chapel Hill. I don't remember anyway we we're on a plane and and he starts telling me all about it and we got deep into it like brainstorming all these ideas on on how they can um, spotlight the companies they're investing in and and um, how they can use metrics and and uh, quantify it and um, pitch that to their investors and and do like uh, sessions pulling in you know people from the companies that are contributing a lot of money and anyway it was I was like I wait sounds awesome. I, I really didn't know what they do, but they play a pivotal role in kind of um, sifting through and and uh, they've, they've already identified nonprofits that could use efficiently use capital and uh, and deploy it at a local level. So it was kind of cool. Um, anyway, it's fun, nice. fun conversation. Good. good yeah, yeah, that's great. Hey man, thank you for coming on. Um, you are uh it's been an interesting conversation. I've learned a few things and um it's been a good time. So thank you for coming on, man.
1: No, Sean, thank thanks for for considering me and again, man, kudos to you for pulling this off. You you are uh not someone that has a ton of time on your own right now just with uh, all the kids that you have and your job and uh, I definitely commend you for uh doing this. I think it's great just to kind of, you know, collect different perspectives on things. It's it you know guys our age don't, uh, hang out a ton together. Uh, you know, we tend to be more focused on our families, but I think this is probably a, a really good way to kind of impart, uh, wisdom to one another, uh, you know, given the fact that we're all having a socially distance right now. So kudos to you, man. Keep it up.
0: Hey man. Thank you. Um, for anyone interested in finding you to connect or learn more about you, where can people reach you?
1: Uh, I would say reach out to me on Twitter. I, I'm pretty active on there. I, my Twitter handle is just Jeremy Deaver. Uh, I'm I'm the only one, so it should be pretty easy to find. Cool. All right, man. Thank you. Have a great day. Sean, take care, man.
0: Thank you for listening to the show. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe to make sure you catch new episodes as they come out. If you've already subscribed, please consider sharing an episode with a friend and or rating the podcast in Apple Podcasts or your preferred platform. If you have a dad in mind who would make a killer guest, send me a note. If you have a question you'd like me to ask, please share it with me. If you have any other feedback, including but not limited to hate mail, send it on over. You can find me on LinkedIn under the name Sean Radvansky. I always enjoy hearing from listeners, wherever or whoever you are. Thank you for joining me as I ask random questions to learn about various topics and hear how these dads live their lives. I enjoy doing these episodes and knowing that you are listening provides extra motivation. So thank you. I hope you make today a good day. See you next time.